Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brano Winerdi, and today I'm talking to Tony McVeigh, model maker, sculptor, and character designer who has worked on three generations of Star Wars. The designer of Salacious Crumb and sculptor of Sice Noodles, the Rancor, Gamorrean Guards, Mr. McVeigh returned to bring Jar Jar Geno, Scenes and Yoda to three dimensions for the prequels, and then once more to the Mandalorian to help design already iconic creatures like the child and quill so it's a real honor to say that this is talking day 94 episode 100 Tony before i mean diving into star wars and diving into all the incredible work that you've done over the years i would love to just go all the way back to your earliest inspirations what what made you even want to be an artist in the first place hmm that's a good question i wish i could remember <laughs> i always had a some sort of a talent for for drawing and, and painting things i didn't get to sculpting until I guess I was in my teens, maybe. I was always drawing stuff, copying things out of usually books about prehistoric animals or cave people or whatever. Um, and I just sort of developed from there. It, it, it became sort of an obsession in some ways. It was uh, something I did for just to get some, some uh, enjoyment out of life. Because <laughs> it, it was kind of boring where I grew up. I grew up in Glasgow. I was born in Southampton, which is in southern England on the coast. It's a big seaport. But my dad was from Glasgow. So we moved up there. I think I was about one. And we came back down to Southampton when I was nine or 10. So I don't remember too much of Glasgow. But I do recall, actually, my dad took me to see a movie at the local movie house called Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Uh-huh. And an old Ray Harryhausen movie. I had never seen anything like that before. It totally captured my imagination. So uh, I kind of got obsessed with <laughs> with cyclopses and dragons and whatnot, <laughs> and it sort of uh-huh. opened a door for me. So when I got back to, um, when, we, when we moved back down to England, he, I remember he told me about a movie, we were standing waiting for a bus one day, and he was into this <laughs> kind of stuff, apparently, though I didn't know it at the time. He started telling me about this movie he'd seen years ago, about a giant ape crawling up the side of the Empire State Building with a, little, a tiny little <laughs> blonde woman in one hand. And he gets to the top and puts her down on a ledge, and then these biplanes attack him and shoot him, pump him full of bullets, and he falls off. And I thought, wow, that's kind of interesting. I'd like to see that movie at some <laughs> point. And I did. When I was 13, um, it was actually showing at a local uh, movie theater in Southampton called the Classic Cinema. And they made a, sp- a specialty of showing old classic movies, hence the title, you know, things like... Oh, black and white, Humphrey Bogart movies and that kind of stuff. But um, this was on a double bill with The Thing from Another World with James Arness. So I, I went off there and I saw it and it totally blew my mind. I'd never seen anything like, like that before. It just opened a door for me. So yeah, I was really obsessed with that kind of stuff afterwards. How did you turn that um, fascination into a, a career, into a job? I know you initially started working for museums and i'd love to delve in a little bit there of just that journey you took to to mm-hmm. kind of make it a professional career well when i left school at 16 i uh, remember I had, I had a discussion with my careers advisory officer which is sort of a standard <laughs> thing uh when you leave school they, they give you tips okay. about what career to get into and uh, he uh he advised i go to art school so i did i went to art school for three years but I studied graphic design, what used to be called commercial art, I suppose, which, you know, it was okay, but I wasn't really into it that much. I should have actually, looking back on it, I, I should have joined the sculpture division and, and concentrated on that, but I didn't. So anyway, I left, I left art school after three years, 
couldn't find work. I got a few odd jobs in Southampton doing graphics. And then a friend of mine gave me an ad from a local newspaper. Apparently, the Natural History Museum in London were, were looking for a, um, a model maker. They had their own mm-hmm. model making and taxidermy division. And they were looking for somebody to step in because somebody had just left. So I applied for the job. I didn't get it. So <laughs> I went back to doing my, my freelance stuff for a year. And then the, the job was advertised again. Same thing. So I tried again. And this time I, I was successful. I got the job. So I ended up working there for four years, uh, which meant traveling from Southampton up to London, which is a journey of about 90 miles. I did that every day on the train. I found out pretty quickly that the man in charge of the division, the the model-making division, was a fellow named Arthur Hayward. And uh, he had done... He had done a lot of work, freelance work, in addition to his museum work. And I found out that he was actually uh, Ray Harryhausen's model maker from um, 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 Mysterious Island up until the Valley of Guanji, at which point they had a falling out and they they went their separate ways. I think Arthur violated some clause in his contract or something, and Charles Schneer, uh, Ray's business partner, was ready to sue him, but I think Ray dissuaded him from doing that. That was the end of their partnership. Arthur had all these uh, resin and latex castings of, of things he had done for Ray sitting on his office shelves. And I recognized some of them. I recognized the, the Allosaurus from Guanji. And I started to ask him about these, these things. And uh, eventually all this, this story came out. He was very reticent to talk about it initially. But he got into it eventually. And he even showed me some photographs from his scrapbook of the heads he'd made for the Hydra from Jason and the Argonauts. And... Uh, an early version of Talos, which wasn't accepted, although it was very similar to the one that was used. A fellow named Wilkie Wilkinson sculpted Talos. The Phororachus from Mysterious Island, you know, the big bird that people seem to think is a chicken or something. It's actually a prehistoric <laughs> carnivore. It's a mm-hmm. bird of prey. But yeah, he showed me that. I think that was the first thing he ever made for a ray. So it got to be quite interesting. Uh, I enjoyed working there, but uh, I actually had ambitions to get into the movie industry, and Arthur knew that, so... At the end of the four-year term, um, he, he had a word with his friend. He got me on to Superman, the, the first version, the first mm-hmm. Superman movie that, directed by Richard Donner. So I got a job working on that for a few months. So I ended up making models of Superman in, in a various positions. I think a flying position. They, they wanted to make a, a small-scale model of him for flying shots. So I ended up sculpting that, and they went to the effects department, and they motorized it and put... Uh, a cape on it that had actuators underneath it to make it jiggle, like it was flying through the air. While I was there, there was a crew screening of uh, Star Wars, uh-huh. the very first Star Wars. So I, I went and watched it, along with everybody else at the studio, and we all sat there watching this thing, and when it was over, there wasn't a lot of talk. People were fairly quiet, you know, they were fairly uh, uh-huh. wondering what all the fuss was about. But you have to remember, these are all like industry veterans. They've seen all this stuff before. They, didn't, they weren't that impressed with it, quite frankly. If I'd seen it with an ordinary audience of, uh, you know, moviegoers, I'm sure the reaction would have been quite different. But they were a bit jaded. So. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't a big reaction to it. They just wondered what all the fuss was about. <laughs> I worked on the Dark Crystal. Mm-hmm. I got a job working on the Dark Crystal for, I think it was there for about a year. And they had a studio in Hampstead. Mm-hmm. It was, I think it was an old bank office, and it was right across the street from Jim's house. Jim and his wife and family lived across the street from this workshop. So, And they were, I think they were shooting one of the Muppet movies at the time. 
but he would pop in from time to time to see what we were doing because mm-hmm. the dark crystal was like this this big special project of his he he devoted a lot of time and, and energy to it mm-hmm. and hired a lot of uh, people to contribute to it not the least of which was Brian Froud and he contributed a, a lot of very interesting artwork for it the characters were really fascinating looking but the thing is by the time i was hired all the um character work had been assigned to other people so i didn't have a lot to do mm-hmm. in terms of uh, the main characters so i was doing a lot of pickup stuff i, I sculpted uh Ogre's horns and feet and a, lot, a few of the uh the the podlings uh, the, the, the peasant people um about six months into it i asked for a transfer out to the studio where they were shooting the film and i ended up in the art department there so we did a lot of incidental characters you know bugs and plants and things for the forest sequences that was quite interesting work. I enjoyed that. And it went on for, like I say, about a year or so. And during that time, I met um, one of the other uh, sculptors and, and fabricators, a fellow named Mike Bormick, who was in the, in the uh, Hampstead workshop. And um, he, was a, he was a puppeteer. And actually, he was a Punch and Judy man. He was from Albuquerque. And he earned a living doing a Punch and Judy show. But somehow he got hired on Dark Crystal, and he was doing all this Skeksis armor. Beautiful stuff. Uh, and we formed a friendship. When my work was done, we got to talking, and we decided to come over to the States, to L.A., to see if we can find any work over here. And the, the storyboard artist on Dark Crystal, a fellow named Mike Plug, he lived in L.A., and he said, if you're ever in the city, stop by, and I'll introduce you to a few people. Uh, so we did that. We, we came over, and we stayed with Mike for a little bit. And uh, he took us around, and at that point, Rob Bottin was working on The Thing from Another World for John Carpenter. And they just set up their workshop, and we got a tour of that workshop. It was very interesting. They'd done some yeah. bizarre stuff. Uh, I mean, you've seen the movie, I'm sure. Yeah. There's a lot of pretty freaky stuff, and they were in the middle of trying to develop and, and finalize that, that kind of stuff. So it was, it was an interesting tour. We mm-hmm. didn't get any work out of it because we weren't union members, and that was right. true for... Everything else we visited in L.A., you had to be a union member to get any kind of work. We had a car. He had bought a little VW Bug, and we drove up to um, the, the Bay Area here mm-hmm. and, and talked to um, folks at Lucasfilm because we'd heard that they were starting up Re- uh, Return of the Jedi or Revenge of the Jedi, as it was then called. <laughs> right. So we, we came up here and interviewed with Phil Tippett. Now... Phil was a stop-motion animator, and he had heard of me before because of my work with Ray. Mm. So I, we had sort of a, an in there. Right. And he said, if you can come back in a week, we can give you work. We can start you up. So <laughs> we've had to fly back to England and try and finalize all our affairs in England and then get in the plane and come back here, uh-huh. which we did. Right. And then we, we started work on... Uh, on Jedi, and that lasted for uh, about 11 months for me. Wow. That was quite, that was quite an escapade, I must say. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. I, I mean, you, you've seen kind of the list of people I've talked to, and I just have such an affection and love for that creature shop, especially for Return of the Jedi. It's just such a magical place, and all the work that was kind of out is just the craziest, weirdest stuff I think that's ever really come out of Star Wars in such a great way. And I'd love <laughs> to kind of hone in on your work on that, and maybe things that stuck out to you. Of course, the thing that, that is been the most popularized is of course your work with salacious crumb which i know you uh collaborated on a little bit with mike mccormick on that and maybe we can start with with salacious and and go from there 
Sure. Uh, well, let's see. How does Fallacious start? I had, uh, along with Mike, I'd made a character called uh, Ephant Man, mm-hmm. which is, uh, we called him Elephant Man. He was, uh, <laughs> right. I think he was designed by, he was designed by Phil, I believe. It was, uh-huh. uh, he had made him a cat, uh, and that had been approved by George, and we were given the task of making the costume for it. So um, I sculpted the, the head of it in water-based clay, and then uh-huh. Mike and I made a mold of it, and we cast it in latex and foam and painted it and stuck hair in it and put eyes in it. And Mike made the harness for the, the costume, uh-huh. and then the, co- the the costume department made the costume to fit over it and made legs for it, which you never saw, really. Uh-huh. And the hands for it were from another creature that Phil had made, another background alien creature for the se- that sequence. So Phil came to me one day when we had finished the costume and said, we need to make a little pet for this guy. Like a, a pirate with his parrot, you know, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Why don't you go design something? So I went home that night and I made a drawing of what I thought it should look like, and I brought it back the next day. And he said, okay, go ahead and make that. <laughs> and that was, that was Salacious Crumb. Yeah. That was actually Ephant Mon's pet. It wasn't anything to do with Jabba. Right. You know, that what happened was that when it, all that stuff got to England and the director saw uh, salacious, he said, why don't we put him on, on Jabba's tail, make him Jabba's tail. <laughs> so that's how that came to be. If I'd known that was going to happen, I would have spent more time in that puppet because it was very basic. <laughs> right. It couldn't blink, it couldn't move its eyes, it just opened and closed its mouth and its ears wiggled because of the wire inside. There was springy wire in the ear cell. If you moved the head, the ears would move around. But that was it, really. It didn't do much. And then, of course, it's kind of just taken a life of its own and I mean we'll talk about Mandalorian a little bit later but I love just kind of seeing yeah. it co- constantly pop back up one of the other creatures that stands out to me with the with the creature shop is the iterations it took to get to the rancor and the final product of the rancor and I'd love to talk if how involved you were in that process whether it was the full body suit or the, the final stop motion puppet but kind of where you were in that process and, and how you kind of collaborated with everything yeah well uh, again George wanted to approach that character as a, initially as a guy in a costume mm-hmm. so um, that's what we did we, we built a costume of the rancor based on Phil's maquette although for practical reasons um, the, the, the forearms had to be shortened uh-huh. Uh, which I thought was a great shame because that was really one of the signifying features of that character was those really long arms. But that was impractical to do as a costume. Uh, if we left the arms that long, the person inside the thing wouldn't have been able to contract the fingers because, you know, there's just too much <laughs> resistance in, in a spring of that length. So um, we had to shorten the arms to make the, the hands or the fingers movable. It couldn't move its hands up and down. The, the, there was no movement in the wrist joint. Uh, the mouth opened and closed. It blinked. I think those were all activated by cables. I think we had a, a body casting um, left over from building the pig guards, and we modified uh-huh. that. And then I built up the exterior muscles and such with Scott foam. It's a kind of very coarse urethane foam. Once that was built up, and there was a big zipper up the back. I said, no, it got into it from the from the crotch. The crotch was open. It <laughs> went down over the operator's head, and then he put the legs on and then the arms. So yeah, once that was all done, I had to cover it in skin and paint it. Oh, God, that thing was a true pain <laughs> in the neck. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> to put it bluntly. Um, and nobody thought it was really going to work too well, right. uh, just because of the, the compromises you have to make to have a costume of that size and weight, be practical. Um, so, And we were right. It didn't really work that well. They, did, they <laughs> shot some tests with it, 
but almost, but not quite. So they went back to the idea of, of doing a puppet, which was a good idea. We were all in favor of that, to be honest, because uh, mm-hmm. you could keep the, the proportions and the look of the thing properly and be faithful to, to Phil's original design. So I think that was actually a, a very good decision. It really worked. You mentioned the pig guards and, I mean, of course, the Gamorians and I think even Cy Snoodles you, you had a hand in and really just kind of looking back on that whole creature shop, uh, 11 months, as you said, like, is there anything that sticks out to you in terms of designs you were proud of or mediums you were able to kind of play with and work with in a, in a way that maybe you hadn't before that kind of stand out to you even now after all these years? I think nearly everything I was involved in in that shop was a standout. I had never done anything like that before. <laughs> Uh-huh. Uh, to that to that scale, you know, and the, to that involvement, I hadn't. I'd done a few puppets, but you know, these were costumes and puppets and Coven the boat. I'd never done anything <laughs> like that before. It was a real challenge. Everything was. I mean, I, I think I was involved with like eleven or twelve different characters, right. uh, including um, Cy Snoodles, the, the singer. Right. Uh, again, Mike was involved in that. Mike Mike McCormick was involved in that. In figuring out the puppeteering of it. And Stuart Ziff was involved in the armature building. It was just, it was a big rod puppet, actually, is what that was. Mm-hmm. A lot of fabrication and some foam casting, foam latex, that is, uh, for her, her, her snout, her trunk. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> uh, the rest of it was just built up directly over the, over the framework and then covered in a rubber skin and painted, much like many of those characters, because there was a lot to do, a lot of characters to realize, and not a lot of time to get them done, so we... We had to find the quickest, most expedient methods of of making these things, and so a lot of build-up was done. And Phil was pretty well versed in that stuff, so he, he sculpted a few things too. Though he did uh, Admiral Akbar, I think he sculpted that character. It was forty-five years ago. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just asking the tough questions here. You know, um, you're mentioning you're mentioning medium. You're mentioning like how your process worked, and I'd love to. I mean. Your career, of course, moves way past Return of the Jedi and, and everything you were doing, but even Gremlins and Search for Spock and kind of moving through it, how did your process change, whether with the actual tools you were using or, or your process itself? How did that, did it evolve or what kind of did you see happen as you went through the rest of these projects through the years? I don't, I don't think that my pro- process changed too much. It was mm-hmm. still the basics of you sculpt something, you make a mold, and then you cast it in another medium that's flexible. What really changed is the fact that CG became so prevalent. It's the dominant effects technique now, or answer for most effects work. So, you know, I'm still doing what I do. Uh, right. I haven't changed. I haven't gotten into that kind of thing because I don't. Really, <laughs> it's not very interesting to me. I like to make things with my hands. I don't want to sit in front of a monitor all day. So that's the main change. But um, makeup and, uh, and puppets and costumes they haven't gone away this they're actually making a comeback i think right especially with uh with mandalorian there's a lot of mm-hmm. crossover in that particular series for sure i i'd love because you brought up the advent of cg and in my mind that really is tied pretty directly to the prequels for star wars and you of course worked on on phantom menace and attack of the clones as well returning to star wars and you're because you, uh, you mostly did maquettes and sculptures for what would eventually become cg characters and your work is just so expressive and so animated and i mean let's i mean talking about phantom menace specifically uh it's they're pretty famous like your your initial concept work on jar jar 
is just like so incredible in terms of the personality you gave him just with your with your sculpture. I'd love to talk a little bit about coming back to Star Wars, working with Doug Chang and Terrell Whitlatch, and then kind of being part of that CG process like you're talking about, but but retaining those roots of the practical and the physical. She had done a series of illustrations for that character, and Doug asked me to do uh, a couple of head sculpts with him in various expressions and a full body sculpt. I did a, the full body sculpt I did is different from the, the final. The, 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 the head is different. It's a different look. I think George approved the final look after the, the, the maquette that I made had been looked at and been viewed. Uh, he wasn't quite, I guess he wasn't happy with the way it looked. He didn't, also didn't have a costume. It was, it was a completely naked Jar Jar Binks. We had, didn't have a costume designed by that point. So um, he got a lot of negative reaction from fans, and I think it's primarily because of his voice. I don't think it's his look so much. It's, it's more his voice and his, his, his behavior, which is, <laughs> <laughs> was kind of, kind of irritating, you might say. But... Um, it's, I don't know. It's 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 just another string to the bow. I, I had a lot of fun working on yeah. it. I had a lot of fun working on Yoda too. I mean, I did a version of Yoda for uh, what, what was that for? Phantom Menace? Attack of the Clones, probably for digital, right? Yes, yes. I did a sculpture of his head, which was scanned, and I think they used that as the basis for their yeah. CG version. Incredible. Yeah, yeah. I still have a, a casting of that. Oh wow. Head sitting in my studio. Oh wow. That's. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible. I mean, because again, <laughs> we're talking about the prequels which are very intrinsically tied to like how movies are made now and even i mean it's very interesting whenever i get to talk to someone that worked on them because i mean not to date myself but i was seven years old eight years old when phantom menace came out so i was the perfect age for jar jar right like i dressed as jar jar for halloween that year i believe right so it's like and oh really so now (laughs) and so now that generation is growing up right and kind of revisiting these things that yes people on the internet or reviewers whatever might have had an adverse reaction to but i think the lasting legacy of the characters, not only in how they're designed, but kind of what they did for movies is very interesting to me to kind of now approach from a, from a different side of things. And I mean, that goes to what you're saying about, you know, you working on Yoda. I think you also designed the Geonosians for Attack of the Clones and, and you being such an intrinsic part of that pipeline, I think is an interesting thing to touch on because you were really kind of creating how they should be animated almost in a way because of the expressions and the facial features and even the I'm looking at the maquette for Jar Jar that you did where he's standing and that posture is it's Jar Jar, right? Even if the face is not exact, but what you're bringing to that character was animating him just as much as one of the actual computer generated modelers were going to be. Oh, well, it's kind of you to say that. Thank you. Well, you know, I look at people's artwork and it's, uh, things occur to me about the, the character of this, of this particular mm-hmm. creature and how it should behave and what it, what it would do if it were real. Mm-hmm. Uh, I try and put that in my sculptures, right. you know, so so it, it communicates itself to others. But yeah, I'm glad that came across. He was an interesting guy. He was an interesting thing to work on. Yeah, that's an understatement. Because yeah. <laughs> um, because yes. I'm interested because you then, of course, you returned to to Star Wars. What twenty years after that with the Mandalorian? It was something I was so excited about because I, I was I was there in the crowd when they showed the first footage of Mando, and the first thing that really got the audible response was the monkey lizards in in the shot. And then afterwards, they were like, "Yes," and it is sculpted oh. again by Tony McVeigh. And like, it was just such a great kind of return to form that we kind of knew that people were taking this very seriously on on Lucasfilm side, especially and. I'd love to talk maybe, how did you initially get brought back into the fold? What was it like working again with Doug Chang and the entire art department? And how has that been for you, especially um, 
moving through this next generation of Star Wars. Oh, well, it's been a great project to be involved with. Um, yeah, I think I started three years ago on that. And we were we were working in the Presidio, mm-hmm. in, in Lucasfilm's uh, complex in the Presidio in San Francisco, uh, for the first two years. And then, of course, last year, because of COVID, we were all working at home now. But, um, yeah, Doug gave me a call and had me come in, see what the project was all about. <laughs> and it sounded, it looked very intriguing. So I certainly was keen to get involved. And yeah, I've, I've done a whole host of different creatures in maquette form or just busts, just clay busts right. of uh, various characters and you know, trying to find the look based on um, artwork right. done by Christian Altman and uh, the other folks in the, in the art department. Mm-hmm. It's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. Although, uh, being a TV series, you don't get a lot of time to get this stuff done. That's one of the problems, from my point of view anyway, uh, Working on a movie, you usually get a lot more time to develop the look of, of a character, and uh, you, it's not such an almighty rush, but TV schedules are different, so that's been a bit of a pain. But nonetheless, it's been an enjoyable project. I've I really had a grand, a grand time with it. I've done a lot of stuff. Uh, <laughs> we've, we've produced a lot of characters for this show. No, I, I love because um, The Art of the Mandalorian finally came out by Phil Shostak, and it highlights your work, and, mm-hmm. and, and it really, in my mind, kind of separates into two distinct things that you were working on one is kind of revitalizing previous characters and a lot of them were background maybe didn't have the detail and you had to kind of bring characters to life that might have been just kind of background aliens or or something and make them more realistic yeah. for for modern and then the second of course is, is the new characters but i'd love to first talk initially about maybe the revisiting and and, and what your approach was to making these characters that are, are iconic because they are action figures or they've been in a movie for the past 30 years that we've all been watching but you having to kind of tweak them and turn them into something that can can really, quote unquote, hold up for a modern viewing audience. <laughs> yeah. Well, part of that is because of my obsession with detail. You know, <laughs> if I have to sculpt something, I'm going to detail the heck out of it. That's for sure. Right. Uh, I think it's probably why Doug hired me. <laughs> <laughs> he knew I was going to go that way. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what to say about that. Really, it's just. I've been doing this for 46 years now, and after a while, it just becomes this big blur, you know? You just, yeah. you just yeah, It's stuff you do, and you enjoy doing. The, the nitty-gritty details tend to just disappear <laughs> and right. blend together. Right. So I don't know what to say about that. Uh, I, I still enjoy doing it. Yeah. Um, I'm probably always going to do it. I mean, I'm way past <laughs> retirement age, and I'm still doing this nonsense, so who knows? I mean, because then, of course, with the new characters of Mandalorian, which have become iconic Star Wars characters on their own, like you, you had a huge hand in, in helping, like the child especially, uh, oh, yeah. coming to three dimensional life, right? Christian Alsman, of course, coming up with that initial sketch, and but then you having to kind of put it into to three D, I think, is is a, such an important part of the process. And whether it's that or Queel or or anything like that, I'd, I'd love to hear just maybe how your relationship with those artists has been in such a collaborative way and really kind of, again, bring that to, to the screen like that. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a good crew. It's not a big crew. There's, I think right. it's like 11 people in that department. Um, so it's not a huge department, but uh, you know, these are guys who have done this kind of stuff for a long time, and they're very professional about it, and they're very, very talented too. So it makes my job easier because I, I just copied Christian's designs. I think I may have shortened his ears a little bit and added some mm-hmm. particular skin detail to him and then I had to paint the, the maquette I produced. Actually, I painted two of them. Um, uh-huh. 
There's one in the art department and the, the other one's down in L.A., I believe. But it's, you know, it's, it's part of the course type stuff. Um, yeah, it's just stuff yeah. I do. It's like, yeah, it's well, like breathing in a way. <laughs> <laughs> but that, I mean, that's incredible because it is so, it, when you see your work, it, it does feel so seamless, right? It, but it's also just so complicated. And so like, because you're able to bring these characters to life and every, every single sculpt that is at least showcased publicly, like it all has that light behind their eyes, which I think is just, it, that's a very tough feat uh, to pull off over and over and over again. And so, I mean, really, this is just <laughs> turned into me gushing about how much I, I love your stuff. And, uh, and you mentioned your Facebook page a little bit earlier, which I've just taken such great joy from because you've been highlighting not only your previous projects like Beowulf or whatever it would be, but also your incredible model work, which has like, like if you Google your name, people, it's like a, almost a, an obsession for people with how detailed your models have been that then they've been able to kind of take and make their own as well. But mm. what has brought you the most joy or the most passion through all these projects? And you mentioned earlier, it's like breathing, like what, what gets you excited about uh, new projects even now? Um, doing something I haven't done before. That's really what, what gets me going. Uh, if I'm presented with a, a character brief that, that requires I do something I haven't done before. Mm-hmm. That, that's that, that that's challenging, and I, I I enjoy meeting that challenge, and um, I think I'm always going to enjoy that. Uh, yeah. I try and do that with my own work, mm-hmm. uh, and certainly with other, you know, if, I, if I'm working for others, I certainly could try and bring that to it. Yeah, I haven't I haven't lost that. Uh, you know, the the thing about this business, or at least my part of the business, is uh, this is going to sound a bit cynical, I suppose, but um, the, the truly enjoyable part is design and sculpting. The rest of it is labor, making a mold uh-huh. and doing a cast. And well, the painting is fun. I enjoy doing that. But mm-hmm. the the mechanical stuff to get to the finished product, I don't know. I must have made thousands, literally thousands of molds by now. Uh-huh. And the, the bloom is off the rose with that thing. I, I just I'm not into it as much as I used to be. It's just <laughs> another step in the process. But right. it's worth it because you get to the end product and you get to you know, add a little bit of flourish to it and, and make it unusual or eye-catching or whatever. I do enjoy that aspect of it, and I, I think I will as well. It's the reason I still do this. Well, Mr. McVeigh, thank you for your time and your stories and, of course, the incredible work over the past four decades and beyond, and I'm excited to see what else you have up your sleeve. And thank you again for, for this time. I, I, it really, in case you cannot tell, it's, I'm very excited <laughs> to be able to talk to you. <laughs> well, thank you. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. Thanks, for, thanks so much. Bay, thank you so much for your time, stories, and iconic contributions to the world of Star Wars. For a more in-depth look at his process and creations, definitely go to his Facebook page, which is jam-packed with incredible models and sculptures. And so, yeah, that is our 100th episode. I cannot believe that we've gotten to this point and to this milestone. And I want to take this time just really briefly to thank so many people. First, our guests who have been so generous and so gracious 
and our partners who have helped make a lot of these interviews possible for you all to listen to. And, of course, all of you, our fans, for supporting the show, listening every week, telling your friends, reviewing us on Apple, and buying the merch. And I, Brandon, want to especially thank Jason, the producer of this show, who works so hard behind the scenes with recordings and video call setups and all the incredible graphics you see every week. He was the first person I texted with this idea way back in 2017, and I am so grateful that he's been on this journey with me ever since. It has meant so much to hear from you all and to be welcomed into the Star Wars community with such open arms over the past three years, and really, I just can't wait to see what happens next. So, until then, stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and may the Force be with you.